Hey, you may have heard, but Feminist Frequency has a new initiative called the Games and Online Harassment Hotline. This week, the hotline teamed up with three other nonprofits who serve the gaming community. Take this, Global Game Jam, and the IGDA Foundation to launch the Stay in the Game Relief Fund. This campaign will help make sure that our organizations can stay in the game during the COVID-19 pandemic, because more people in this community need our help more than ever. You can give back by checking out the campaign at givebutter.com slash stay in the game. You can donate or even start your own fundraising page. That kiss that they share and the way that Ellie leaves and then says like, you know, I'll see you in a couple that it couldn't have been more perfect for me. I'm oh God, this movie, some parts of it were so cute. I couldn't handle it. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media that you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and I'm joined today by two women who could write big volumes on adolescent longing, Carolyn Pettit. And how? And (laughs) Ebony Adams. Hey. Today, we're going to be riding our bikes along the highways and byways of small town Washington State to talk about the modern day Cyrano tale, the half of it. Available now on Netflix. How's it going? <laughs> it's hot. Um, what is a Cyrano tale? So Cyrano de Bergerac is the classic story of a doofy guy who doesn't know how to express himself getting uh, somebody who does know how to express himself very well to, commu- to, to communicate with the object of his affection for him. But Cyrano himself is um, sort of... Uh, not often himself uh, considered attractive because he has a very, very long nose. Um, it was uh, the basis for, you know, uh, maybe so a lot of more modern audiences know it from uh, being adapted into the Steve Martin film, Roxanne. Um, but you can also definitely see the, the framework uh, here in, in the half of it, the film we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Well, isn't that fancy? <laughs> yeah I didn't know that watching it but now I do so hey I feel like I learned my new thing for the day aren't you supposed to try to learn a new thing every day sure be a, life- <laughs> Whatever. Be a lifelong learner I'll always be learning ABL always be learning oh my gosh wow yes. okay um, coffee how- is for learners <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. So this is how everyone is doing today. <laughs> Pretty much. Cool, 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 cool. Ebony is uh, basically sweating her Just burning off. body off. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how Carolyn is doing. What's the weather uh, like in the Bay Area, uh, Carolyn? It's mild at the moment. Um, Sounds yeah. pretty but accurate. It's, we've, we've, had, we've had some very hot days these past few days. Appar- uh, yeah. Apparently, it snowed in Toronto a couple days ago. Mm-hmm. So that's... So, well, disturbing. apparently... Like the the whole like uh, eastward like sixty percent of the United States is going to be facing some massive cold front or something. Cool. Uh, I, I don't know. I um. Listen, the Earth is telling us I'm gonna get y'all by hook or by crook. Yeah. Okay. Like I'm tired of your bullshit. So it really that's it for us. It for us. It really is. You know. And can you blame it? No. no, not at all. I was um, 
very upset about the healthcare system in America recently, which I am regularly, but you know, I had more specific reason to be recently. And I was like, I'm getting the fuck out of this country, which is not a thing that I ever say. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I can go to Canada because I'm a Canadian citizen. <laughs> and then I was like, where would I go in Canada, though? I was like, I don't really want to go back to Vancouver. Maybe Toronto. And then it snowed. And I was like, hell no, I'm not leaving California. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I, I just, I need California to be its own country. Can How's that separatist movement going? Can I, can we like well, start that up again? Oh, gosh. As if we weren't already on somebody's <laughs> watch list. <laughs> I'm just saying. All right, y'all. The half of it is the second feature film from director Alice Wu, whose last film was 2004's Saving Face. The half of it is a sweet coming-of-age story about a wry, bookish, financially-strapped teenager named Ellie Chu who agrees to help Paul, the charming but dim football player slash part-time sausage king, and we mean that literally, (laughs) (laughs) who is desperate to woo the girl that Ellie herself has a crush on. What? It's a love story, but perhaps not in the way you think, or as Ellie herself says, it's not the kind of love story where everyone gets what they want. It's a film that centers platonic or the love between friends just as much, if not more, than romantic love, but it never diminishes the longing that Ellie feels for the lovely Aster. Nor does it give the saccharine happy ending that a more traditional film might. So let's talk about the half of it. Let's talk about it. All right, uh, I don't watch a lot of films. Um, I, I don't know that I would characterize this as like, you know, YA and the way that you, you know, talk about like YA literature or whatever, but I don't watch a lot of films um, that center teenagers um, very often, you know? And after watching uh, Booksmart last year and really enjoying it and really enjoying the half of it, I'm thinking, what have I been missing? Because clearly... You know, there are some people who are doing some great work. One of the things that I really liked about this movie, um, in the same way that I really like this about Booksmart, films about teenagers that kind of allow them to be messy and take them seriously, while also acknowledging that so much of what is making them miserable is a product of the fact that they are young, you know, and that they don't have the autonomy and the resources that they will, you know, hopefully have um, later in life. I just, I found this film, like, just really delightful. Like, it's, you know, it it takes on some really heavy issues. I mean, the relationship with Ellie and her dad, um, you know, for one, but it just, it remained so, like, it was just like a confection. It was so light um, in a lot of ways. I really liked it. I, um, so, uh, I was fascinated by this film, certainly. Uh, you know, early on, I think I, I it, it caught my interest because there's a moment early on where, um, so Ellie, uh, Ellie Chu, the main character, uh, who is, I think, just wonderful and played yeah. wonderfully. It, um, you know, she um, has sort of begrudgingly agreed to help um, uh, Paul, this uh, clue, the, the, the earnest but inarticulate football player sausage king um you know try to communicate his love to uh, to Astor Flores and so uh and she's watching um this film at home with her dad her dad um is a you know chinese immigrant who doesn't speak english very well but he he watches a lot of films um uh, at home um and so at one point he's watching the film Wings of Desire which is a film that i adore um and 
And uh, Ellie winds up just quoting the film directly um, in the letter that she writes as on behalf, on Paul's behalf for Aster. And the funny thing is that Aster, like, recognizes it. And she's like, oh, yeah, nice try. Like, I like, you know, (laughs) I like Wim Wenders too, but, you know. And, you know, it's that thing where, like, I like Wings of Desire, I would never in a million years have like caught that that was a reference to Wings of Desire if somebody snuck that in an email or a romantic letter to me or whatever. Mm. So you kind of understand very early on that um, that this is a kind of heightened reality with right. you know characters who uh, who are are, are um, way more in, in some ways knowledge aware uh culturally aware uh art you know articulate uh, than than not only most young people but most like adults actually are um though of course they're they're still deeply confused and troubled about uh, all the the questions of love and life and things that that so many young people are but um yeah you know you 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 kind of have to just go with it except that this is like a um a a bit of a fantasy um in the sense of of how it how its characters um think and talk and act at times um but um i have a lot of affection for the film i i i think that it's definitely got it's it's hard in the right place it's really sweet i love that it doesn't give you the conventional ending as ellie says very very upfront at the beginning that it's this is a lo- this is not a love story or at least not the kind where everyone gets what they want and she mm. wasn't kidding about that um you know it's uh, i did feel like maybe i'm maybe i'm just a little too old for this at times or something mm-hmm. because i felt like some of the situations were a little contrived and i couldn't i didn't really believe in the behavior of the characters at times but you know, but it's but as a like as a film for younger people, I th- I think it's really sweet and smart and endearing and you know and great. Um, I'm just imagining um, and don't people who are listening <laughs> by no means saying that like there's just a cornucopia of you know just a buffet of media that young queer kids can watch these days mm-hmm. and see themselves affirmed by but i am heartened by the increasing yes. yes you know um amount of media and i just think like god what would it have been like to watch this when i was like 15 mm-hmm. you know and to just have it be like ellie's um longing for and just like wide-eyed kind of you know admiration of aster and really kind of the idea of of aster yeah. um you know like to have that taken so seriously to not <clears throat> excuse me to have it not played for a joke um to have a film that that took it seriously and took both characters seriously you know i just I, i'm wondering what that would have been like and i love i love that um that ellie is chinese american like i just yeah. come on you know like young queers of color just getting to see yourself on screen and like the that heavy anticipation of wondering if you're going to get to kiss the object of your affection oh God, pump it right into my veins. <laughs> I think that um, I, I agree with you on a lot of what you said, Carol, and the the parts about like 
the movie didn't grip me, right? Mm. Like it wasn't like I had just completely lost myself to this narrative in this world, but I still enjoyed it. And I still think there's a lot of value to it. And it, it's still like really, really solid. I did also have that feeling of like, I might be a little too old for, <laughs> for this, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. Like, and, and, you know, I don't feel that way about everything that I watch with teenagers. Um, but it, it did feel a little bit like that for, for this particular one. Um, and that's not honestly like, and sincerely, I'm not trying to diminish the value of this film or that it's actually like a very, you know, it's a, it's a good film. Um, yeah. But one of the things I love, so, so Ellie Chu is played by Leah Lewis and I think she plays her so well. Like yeah. I really, Fantastic. so good. I really, really, really like this character a lot. And I think that she's just such a, she just embodied who this, this young woman is in, you know, the, the poor, like she's, you know, they're poor. They're like struggling mm-hmm. financially. She, mm-hmm. her, she lost her mother at a young age. Her father is, you know, like he's around and doing stuff, but he's dealing with the loss of his wife. Um, and she knows that she's smart, right? Like that's the thing that I love about this is that while she's insecure about maybe her sexuality, she's insecure about kind of being a bit nerdy, um, feeling like she's stuck in this town that she doesn't really want to be in, but feels obligated to be. She never doubts her intelligence. And I think that that's really beautiful um, for a teenager and really like a wonderful representation in this space. Yeah. Yeah. And I I also love how she... (laughs) She doesn't sort of, you know, like blossom into something that she's not. She remains, mm. you know, kind of resolutely Ellie throughout, even as she starts to learn more about how to, you know, perhaps open herself up in some ways or take chances in some in some ways. Um, like the like the her Ellie glasses get- don't ever come off, and she's not like exactly. <laughs> goes through some fucking exactly. huge uh, makeover, which I was so happy about as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think. Oh, still, I didn't mean. I thought you had more to say. Sorry, I didn't mean to say what you. No, were that was saying. that was that was exactly <laughs> it. Like, I I don't watch a lot of rom coms. I do read tons of romance, as anyone who listens to the uh, the podcast knows. But I don't watch a lot of rom coms precisely because too often, and maybe it's just the ones that I've seen. There are those tropes and beats that kind of have to be hit and. Yeah, there often, you know, are those moments of like sort of forced change for for women in ways that hinge upon like the physical, right? You know, so like, oh, you know, we have this character who's kind of billed as being like, you know, plain Jane or whatever, but we know that she's incredibly conventionally attractive anyway, but like she's wearing glasses and then, you know three quarters of the way through the movie, she's got the makeover scene. She takes off the glasses, shakes her ponytail loose. And, and you're like, what? Come on. So I was glad we didn't have that. I think this film has a lot of respect for its characters in general. I mean, I think there's a, there's a great moment early on where, um, where Aster is, I think, responding maybe to one of quote unquote, Paul's letters and says, um, you know, she says something like, she acknowledges that she's pretty, right? And she says, like, mm-hmm. you, that may sound conceited, but, like, let's be honest. And, like, I sort of, like, I always, uh, in real life, I kind of appreciate it when people who are attractive, like, in the in the conventional, by cultural standards sense, like, acknowledge their attractiveness, acknowledge maybe that they, that there are certain privileges that come along with that. And also, of course, that there can be, you know, a lots of unwanted attention or lots of like all kinds of, you know, things that, that maybe aren't, aren't great about it either. But like, 
just like you know i don't have much patience for like the beating around the bush of like of like people who just refuse to acknowledge that they are considered attractive when it's incredibly obvious that they are considered attractive um mm-hmm. like and and um but 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 Astrid also in this film isn't just like the 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 pretty girl that Paul and Ellie um adore but who isn't really much more than that i mean i don't think the film gives her as much time or development as it does to you know ellie and paul but but i think what time it does give her is is um well used to to develop her as somebody who is complex in her own way i mean i think the film um you know there's a lot big religious community in the film and the film it doesn't like try to simplify that or just like ridicule that either. Um, it, it acknowledges, you know, the, the, the questions, the doubts, I think that some of those characters have like Astor at one point asks Paul, like, do you believe in God? And Paul says, of course. And it's like, maybe it's because he believes it, but he also probably thinks it's what she wants to hear. Mm-hmm. But the way that she responds to that, like, yeah, of course, like you can tell that, that even though like her father, I think is like the pastor that she seems to be having these questions in her own, in herself about like, what does it even really mean to believe in God? And do I believe in God? And I don't know. I just appreciate that, that there are those shades of, of complexity to all of these characters, except maybe Trig, uh, who, oh <laughs> God, God, I hate Trig. Um, I love that they named him Trig, though, right? Like, like, like that. Yeah. <laughs> so Trig, I mean, just for folks who haven't seen it yet, Trig yeah. is the Bumble, like the the really, like, quote unquote, hot jock dude that Aster is dating because, like, she's the hottest like young woman in school and he's mm-hmm. the hottest guy in school and so they just like are supposed to be together kind of thing like that's the sense that you get and and she's like she's such a non-entity to him that he never picks up on the fact that like she's completely checked out of their relationship you know and it, it matters to him not a whit you know so like he will be straight up talking to her or talking at her mm-hmm. and the point is she is just a warm body a warm hot body in front of him but the fact that she's clearly not invested in their relationship doesn't penetrate whatsoever um I also really appreciated Alice Wu's direction um, of this film. I, there's uh, some really smart and effective, I think, visual moments. Like there's a moment where, um, so Ellie is, um, uh, as, as Aster sometimes calls her, a, a heathen. You know, she's not a, she, mm-hmm. she's not religious, but she is the accompanist at the church um, because she's, she's a better musician than any of the, anyone that her, uh, her father could find. And like, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't uh, handle the poor musicianship of, of, the, <laughs> of the believers. So, so, so the heathen gets to sit in and play. So, but there's this moment where like, um, the, like, uh, I forget exactly how the dynamic plays out, but I think so Ellie, um, Text something to Aster because as Paul, right? And Aster reacts to it, but then she turns backwards and smiles at Paul, and Paul like uh, you know nods and like smiles back at her. And you have this shot right where you can see um, Paul and Aster and the whole congregation like together on the bottom level, and Ellie is like alone up um in the i forget what you call that area but the musicians like Mm -hmm. where the where the organ is on the on this higher level and it's just like 
it's this, you know, it's this really like meaningful shot about like how she is kind of removed. I mean, even though she's very involved in the dynamic of their relationship, because she's writing everything that Paul says, like she is like removed from it. Like there's, there's a real, you know, I just love shots like that, that, that are, that communicate something uh, beyond just like, here's the physical space that the characters are in, which there's definitely something of that going on in, uh, in that moment. That, and that whole scene felt very um, theatrical in a Shakespearean sort of way, mm-hmm. more so than I think some of the other parts of this film where it was like, she's, she's making this grand proclamation at the, at the top of, you know, whatever. And then uh, she like walks down the stairs and then everyone is in their different areas. And like, it's, it's, um, it was, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, uh, you know, like, anyways, it was just cute. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. <laughs> um, it was cute, queued up in a certain way. I can't think of the word, but we're like, it's kind it, of maybe contrived, like, or, yeah, no, it's we don't there's... need to guess the word I mean, but um, <laughs> it's fine. But no, let's spend another minute doing it. <laughs> I'm just gonna ramble for a while till it comes to me, but no, I mean, like, there was something about like, and it was it's climactic in that way, right? Like, this yes. is obviously the moment we've yeah. been waiting for, and it does play out a little bit differently than some of the other you know, Carolyn, you were talking about the direction, like it plays out um, a little bit differently physically in that space, um, mm-hmm. in the way that it was performed with this whole audience. And mm-hmm. like, nobody really moves except for Ellie. And like, when she starts walking down the stairs, I'm like, oh, is she running out? Like what's happening? And then she, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I thought, yeah. it, I thought it was interesting the way that it was all staged. Staging, staging. Oh, there, you there you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, hold on. But it's, so, I yeah. think it's also related to like, the intellectual references of the whole film, right? Like that the the relationship between Aster and Ellie, um, it, like Carolyn, you were saying, is a little hard to to accept. But I think that it's actually really, I, I love that it is giving teenagers credit in a lot of ways of like young people yeah. can be really smart and intellectual oh. and and pe- put these pieces together and use um, f- use um texts um whether it be films or actual books or what have you to try to make sense of their own lives right and their parents lives and and the choices that they need to be making and thinking about yeah and of course even paul who you know we could write off as the as the quote-unquote like dumb guy um like we i think by the end of the movie understand that yeah he may not be the most the best verbal communicator on the planet but but you know, but there are all kinds of intelligence, and you know he 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 does Paul's, have Paul's love language is sausage tacos. Okay, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like he he he's creative in in his thinking about food and right what he wants for the business, and like so he's got stuff going on as well. Um, yeah, and like you know when Ellie says to him, "You try harder than anyone." Mm-hmm. I've ever known, except for my father with my mother. Um, I really loved that, you know, because it reminded me of um, the scene where um, Paul is telling Ellie, you know, like, uh, yes, she gave me this book. It's, you know, the remains of the day. And he's like, I've been trying to read it. I've fallen asleep several times, but I'm still (laughs) trying. You know, like, it would have been so easy for him to just toss it or get like the spark notes version or whatever. But because it matters to Aster, it matters to him, you know? Um, And I I, I love that. I mean, I I love that more than the scene where um, 
Ellie is, you know, riding her bike. And oh my God, every time she was on that bike with the basket on the back was so cute. Um, but she's, you know, riding her bike on the highway in this truck that we've seen a couple times before in the film with these teenage dudes comes riding by, you know, harassing her. And we see, you know, Paul is with her once and then he takes off after the guys yelling at them. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. Save the puppy, whatever. But it meant more to me that he kept trying to read the remains uh-huh. of the day as a way of demonstrating character. Um, I also, I think it's interesting the particular way that this film lets its characters make mistakes and how it views those mistakes. So particularly there's a scene where Paul um, kisses Ellie and like, and you know, when I see that, I'm like, oh my God, dude, what are you doing? Like, why would you think that she would want that? And like, there are definitely films in which I think all like even just seeing that depending on how it was handled, it could have been like, you know, cause like the forced kiss or whatever is often like this really, it's a problematic kind of trope, mm-hmm. right? Or it can be if, if at least the pattern of like the guy sort of sweeping the girl off her feet with the, with the forced kiss that she doesn't even know is coming, nor does she, nor for all he knows, does she want? But like, like I thought that, I mean, I don't know. I just thought the way this film, like, you know, young people do misunderstand things sometimes and do fuck up. And like, so it's not like we're supposed to like write off Paul forever for like, how could you ever do something like that? That was just awful. You're quote unquote canceled, you know, get out of here. It's like, we can acknowledge that it it was a fuck up. And I just, I I think the way the film actually treated it as a fuck up was kind of like refreshing in a way. Um, Me too, because I think like it's we don't see nearly enough instances of men and women being friends without there having to be that romantic undercurrent. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a way in which we're all trained to see any kind of closeness or intimacy between men and women is necessarily like Mm pre-sexual, you know, or romantic in some way. And so the fact that like, yeah, he's 17, you know, and It's unsurprising that he might have, you know, misread those cues because we, many of us do make that same error. Um, I also like how, well, I don't like, but when he um, figures out that Ellie likes Aster um, and says it's a sin, Mm -hmm. it's this total, you can tell he doesn't really believe it. You know, this goes back to the question um, that you posed, Caro, when Aster asked him if he believes in God. And he says, like, yeah, of course. And you're like, well, do you really? Or is that just something you've internalized, something you've consumed? And now you're, you know, repeating it. You're regurgitating it. But you don't get any sense that, like, he actually feels this. And this is something he's going to have to unlearn. He's lashing out. He's angry in that moment. He's confused. But it doesn't, that doesn't seem like, I don't know, anything he truly believes. As he's trying to struggle through, like, but I like this person and think they're a good person. Why do I think they're going to hell? Um, is like looking up things about being gay online. <laughs> his gay. Finds it. <laughs> I love that he types into Google. How do you know if you're a gay? Yes, so like, which is like you don't don't call a gay person a gay. You know, <laughs> but like but he doesn't so, know. Like he yeah. honestly just doesn't know, right? Totally, it's very uh, it is it, very uh, c- character consistent. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but like I did really like that his mom, who obviously is you know the the family is very traditional in a lot of ways and very conservative. It seems like was like it. 
it's okay if you're gay. Like she doesn't really believe it, but she's like, you're my kid and I'm going to be there for you. And so, yeah, it kind of sucks that she's relieved that he's not, but I did like that. She made that effort, even though it probably like killed her to do that. Right. Like that modeling I thought was, was nice. Mm -hmm. Um, Back to the, the relationship between Ellie and Paul is like, of course, like, you know, there, yeah, you see their platonic relationship growing and them like caring for each other and like being invested in, in this, but, but both in selfish ways, but like that, you know, as you spend time with each other, you, you learn more about them and, and that there's slightly more depth to other humans. <laughs> right. Um, and it makes total sense that like he would, start to have feelings for Ellie because Mm -hmm. he's like learning about this, this other way of existing, right? Like I, if you're 17 and you, you think someone is cool, you're going to automatically think that that's sexual, right? Like (laughs) it's just, Mm -hmm. I mean, fuck, you still do that as adults. So whatever. But I think that one thing that's kind of cool here is that he's learning that like in what is attractive might not just be the hottest young woman in school right that like intelligence is attractive and connection and communication and like engagement and like you know all of these different things can also be attractive and like that was his process that he his his Mm -hmm. emotional growth that took place because when he when ellie asked him at the beginning of the movie like why are you so into astor like how do you know you're in love with her he's like the like he was trying just not to be like she's super hot you know? Yeah. And so, yes. like, it makes sense that he would then be like, oh, I must like Ellie now because he's fucking 17 and <laughs> doesn't, and hormones, you know, like, and doesn't know that you could just be like, oh, you're a smart person and we have a really nice friendship or whatever. And maybe he's attracted to her and, like, that's legit I mean, too, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. super legit. Um, and I, like, I'm thankful that it is about a queer young woman so that it doesn't end up that those two are together in the end kind of thing, you know? I was, I mean, I was low-key worried, even though I knew going in that that's not what was going to happen. I was so prepped for it by, you know, every, all the media that I've seen before that I was like, oh no, oh no, they're Hmm. not going to, end up together are like this is not what we're gonna gonna, get this is not gonna be a chasing amy uh. exactly exactly (laughs) um but then you know when ellie and aster do not ride off into the sunset together i was equally pleased because i know how much you know ellie you know feels for aster and just like i said longs for her um but i i just thought it was so honest um, the way, again, that it portrays this young love that is so intense and can be so all-consuming, but is not meant to be, nor will it be, this kind of forever love, you know? And that's okay, you know? I'm thinking, about, you know, like the people I was in love with when I was 17 and was convinced, like, you know, yep, this is it. This is what a soulmate is. And <laughs> Maybe I remember some of their names now. Maybe I don't read my Twitter feed. But the point is, like, you know, it was right for that moment. Like that that kiss that they share and the way that Ellie leaves. And this is like, you know, I'll see you in a couple. That it couldn't have been more perfect for me. I'm oh, God. Well, and this movie, some parts of it were so cute. I couldn't handle it. Well, and also the other thing is that there's no indication that Aster is queer. Right. And that Aster might have any interest in women. Although I bet you she started to feel very confused about what was happening because she ascribed um, sexual attraction to the communication. 
right? And so as you don't she was, feel like you didn't feel like any that Aster felt any kind of I do. Pull? I do okay. totally, mm-hmm. but we don't know that, right? Like we and Aster, no, no, it seems like Aster. It feels like a very questioning moment for Aster, being yes. like, "I didn't realize that I could have these kinds <laughs> of feelings for, you know, or this closeness <laughs> or this intimacy, and like trying to figure out whether that could be romantic or sexual or not." And um, and I'm glad again also that they didn't end up together, and that it was like, oh, uh, you know, like. Aster just magically is like, cool, I'm in love with women now, which, you know, fuck mm. it, can happen, right? And oh, then yeah. maybe she decides she's not and like, whatever, that's also fine. Yeah. But I, I like that they didn't do that and it just left it with Aster being like, I'm not going to be with this fucking douchebag <laughs> was, was her big revelation of like, I'm going to follow my art dreams, right? The other thing- I guess like- Well, sorry, just really quick, too. The other thing about that ending is that as Ellie is like, see you in a couple years, I was like, that is so the thing you would say as a teenager. And you're never going to see her again. I know. (laughs) You're going to go to college. You're going to date all of these fucking women that actually, like, are into you. And you're going to be able to explore that in a way that is is less repressed than it is in your small town, you know? And you're not going to fucking give a shit about Aster in, like, a year. Oh, no, I I totally see them, like, writing to each other in college become good friends but no they're not going to be a couple but I did okay and clearly I'm projecting here because earlier in the film in that just really lovely interlude when they're in the hot spring um and you know Aster you know heads into the water and you know coaxes Ellie in um I was prepared for Aster in that moment to reveal that like oh maybe not she's not into Ellie but you know she's had feelings like this for friends before something like I just thought like this is yeah it's a little baby bisexual here okay so clearly um you know because I just thought <laughs> no, like I it mean- was clear to me throughout I just felt like throughout like oh yeah Aster's definitely bi yeah I mean I I I think that Aster is me and I think maybe that's and again I, I don't think the film gives her as much d- time and development as it does uh, uh, Ellie and, and Paul but I think there's enough there that we can certainly infer or speculate that like uh, maybe that's where her her uh, even asking Paul like do you believe in God like maybe she is on some level struggling with like the limits of what the church tells her is acceptable or unacceptable in terms of what she wants for herself. And so, yeah, at the very least, I, I, I think we can we can suspect that she's going to go to college and at least be open to exploring things that. Oh, she she's had. going to art school. She yeah, for she's, real is going to wind she up. She is definitely something. hooking up with some women, whether she yeah. is queer at all or not. That is yeah. definitely yeah. happening. <laughs> yeah. Like of all the characters and my favorite characters in the film are definitely Ellie's dad. Who yeah. It's just so sweet. And then the um, English teacher who straight up did not give a shit that. Like Ellie was writing papers for people. In fact, she was like, I would prefer that you did that than I have to write, you know, read the shitty papers they would write themselves. Um, but I really wish we had been able to spend more time um, learning about like Aster's interior life, but also the way she has to move through the world. Because although we definitely learn more about like Ellie and her father and the particularity of them being, you know, Chinese and Chinese American in this small town in Washington. We don't get a lot about Aster and the fact that like Aster and her family, this Latina family 
you know, um, yeah. are in this very white town. And that, you know, like, there's that scene where Astor's in the um, the high school in front of, like, the mean girls, like, all the, the blonde girls or whatever. And it's, like, the visual contrast between her with her, you know, beautiful brown hair and then this row of blonde women behind her. And the fact that she's dating this dude, Trig, who I can only assume does not have a last name like Flores, but is something super white. Like, I would have liked more time spent on that. You know? Oh, and Trig thinking that um, Ellie has a crush on him. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it felt a little wedged in, but I also like it just it was. Uh, it did make me laugh. He's it's, like, yeah, Wait, I, I know what's going on yeah. here. I totally. mean, I have no sympathy for anyone who does the 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 who puts their partner in the position of the the public proposal oh god um, you know where there's like all of like yeah. at least if you i mean it's okay if if it's only for show and you've already discussed like i'm going to ask you to marry me at some point and like are you okay mm-hmm. with I, you know like then we can do the ball game like i'll ask you on the jumbotron thing but to put a person in that position like uh, without that no like hell no that is just absolutely unacceptable but exactly uh, uh, but the um god yeah ellie's dad like i really loved that we get you know the way ellie talks about her father and like how qualified he is how smart he is and how Mm -hmm. like the only reason that he doesn't have you know a better job or whatever is i mean i mean it's it's because because he doesn't speak um english all that well like people perceive him as not being capable or qualified or whatever but he's like right. eminently qualified and and like i don't know i just uh, love that acknowledgement of how often it happens that people are looked over for things that they absolutely can do are capable of doing should be doing you know jobs they should be doing or whatever but because of um, societal prejudices, racism, um, gender discrimination, what, 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 you know, you name it, like they, they can't get the, those, uh, those, those jobs. I yeah. Love- and there's that great moment where, you know, Ellie is saying to Paul, like, you know, he doesn't talk good. And, you know, Paul's like, I don't either, but we know that he knows in that moment, like, I'm never going to have the same trouble, right. you know? Right. that your father would. Although there are kind of the class implications because I think, you know, Trig is obviously of the, you know, upper middle class um, and the elite in this town, but Paul, much more clearly working class, got this like huge family and whatever. And so there are those those considerations as well too. Like there's a way in which, you know, the way that you speak marks you in so many ways and either, you know, allows for inclusion or, you know, puts up a barrier to exclusion for so many people. I think that part of what is so appealing about this and this film as like a rom-com, right? As like a, you know, type of story that we've seen so much of in the past is that like we are increasingly seeing stories of folks in these traditional roles who are immigrants, who are poor, Mm. who are, you know, like all these different intersections of identity that adds a depth to these stories that we just didn't get before, right? It like these stories were historically about wealthy, rich white people or like money didn't matter in these situations. And I think that all of these little pieces make this film so much deeper than films before it uh, or, you know, if that makes sense of this genre. And I I really appreciate that. I think it, you know, it obviously comes from the creators and the perspectives and the experience of the creators. And it also, um, I just lost what other the also is. So 
Yeah, I, I I just appreciate those touches. I think it it adds a lot. And like Ebony, you started out talking about like what does this mean for young queer women of color or like girls of color growing up and like seeing mm-hmm. these experiences and having them validated, not having to squeeze their own experience into white women or you know like a wealthy person or what have you, um, right? To to be able to feel seen and validated. And have a great dad who'll send you off to college in Iowa with six days worth of dumplings. <laughs> Yo, that's love right there. I mean, I don't know why going to college in Iowa is the dream, but, you know, you go get it. Hey, Grinnell, you know. Is that cool. a real school? I, I did look. Huh? Is that a real school? It is. And it's a great school. Um, oh, I did love, though, talking, Carol, you mentioned the top of the show about how like you know there were things that were you know kind of contrived that indicate like this is a heightened reality it seemed as if she decided to grow to Grinnell and then what she was automatically admitted I don't understand like what the time elapsing there was it seemed like there were some decisions that got made really quickly and then things just sort of happened but it didn't matter to me it was just a delightful little confection and I loved it all right, y'all. Well, the half of us is on Netflix, so go get it. <laughs> we'll be right back with <laughs> we'll be right back with our weekly freakouts. The COVID nineteen pandemic has the gaming industry and community playing the world on challenge mode right now. So many gamers, developers, and studios are affected. At the same time, people are turning to games as a source of relief, escape, and connection. Every day is a reminder that the people who make and play games matter. Nonprofits that make this industry the best it can be, too, are being hit hard by the pandemic as well. This is why our Games and Online Harassment Hotline has partnered with Take This, Global Game Jam, and the IGDA Foundation, three other nonprofits, to launch the Stay in the Game Relief Fund. Collectively, our organizations decrease stigma and support the mental health of game lovers and creators. We work to create supportive environments for an entry into this creative industry and pave the way for a gaming industry and community that is as safe and inclusive as it is innovative. We need your help right now because more people in gaming need our help now more than ever. You can make a difference for those in your community who have been deeply affected by the pandemic by going to givebutter.com slash stay in the game and making a donation and sharing it with your friends. Now it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us this past week. Carolyn, you want to get us started? Yeah, I am freaking out about a a film called Driveways, which um, uh, is a film, you know, like a number of films that were slotted for theatrical releases right around now. It's it's uh, obviously that whole experience of human life going to the movies is uh, not happening right now. So uh, Driveways is now available to watch like um, on, on demand online. And this is a... Um, a really lovely, just a really lovely, um, you know, uh, film. It is, uh, it stars um, Hong Chow, who, you know, you will recognize, many will recognize from having played the the trillionaire character in um, Watchmen on HBO, like the woman who's building the, you know, the, the, the mega tower or whatever, who has more money than God. Um, but in this film, she plays a, you know, a working class uh, single mom 
who um, whose uh, estranged older sister has recently passed away. And so she and her young son go to basically to clean up the house, uh, you know, and, and maybe sell it, uh, just to figure out kind of what to do with the house where her, um, her sister who died um, had lived. And um, they, uh, they the, the next door neighbor at that house is um, this like Korean war veteran played by uh, Brian Dennehy, um, who was this sort of legendary actor of stage and screen who, um, who did, recently passed away but um you know in this film he plays this like korean war vet this you know obviously old much older guy and um an unlikely kind of connection um develops between um these two uh groups of people and um it's a very you know it's a very gentle film but it's it's it really um it observes its characters with a lot of compassion and empathy um it's a very gentle film and i just think that particularly right now um at a time where maybe a lot of us are not getting as much um human interaction as we uh, usually do or might want or need um for me a film like this that is so human and so kind of so compassionate and so concerned with people and their lives and their small and large struggles um it's um it's just a you know it's just a lovely film to to watch right now awesome that sounds yeah, great that sounds good i miss movie theaters <laughs> oh god me too <laughs> me like too. especially when it got really hot um the last few days i was like oh like an air-conditioned movie theater that's what you do on these like hot oh, summer yes. days you know um, yes. but also I just miss that experience. I don't know, whatever it's, I, it is the least of the problems right now, but it's just something that, um, I think you two also understand and agree with. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, all right, Ebony, what are you freaking out about? Uh, I'm freaking out about, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, well, it's, it's kind of a, a nest of things. So, and I want to frame it by saying that, um, I think it's, you know, apt that we're having this conversation during what is uh, Asian American Pacific Islander month. But there's a recent article going around from the guardian that relates the story about these um, young Tongan boys who were marooned on a deserted Island um, for over a year before they were rescued. Um, and they were rescued by this, um, this wealthy white young man um, who was the son of a um, incredibly wealthy family. And so it has been discussed as kind of this this article and this story about these Tongan boys um, as this refutation to the whole like Lord of the Flies um, phenomenon. This assumption that left to, you know, our own devices, you know, humanity is, you know, will be savage and selfish um, and dark and will revert to, you know, kind of might makes right. Um, it's this very h- hopeless and, you know, cynical view of human nature. And so this story about these, you know, Tongan boys who survived and, you know, <laughs> who didn't turn on each other is, has, is being offered as this corrective. The problem is that it is a very white framing of what happened to these kids that, should be surprising to no one, but this story has really taken off. And there've been all these calls for the dude who wrote the article, like, oh, you need to turn this into a screenplay. We want to see this on the big screen. We want to read more about this. 
with no expectation that actual Tongan people will be involved or that the way they tell this story should be the narrative that we should be learning. Um, so today I was, I happened to stumble upon this Twitter thread, um, this writer, uh, Vika Mana, who is herself a Tongan, just talking about, and I'll read one of her tweets, um, she says, the way people are talking about the Tongan boys on the timeline is reaching a level of disturbing where people are talking about us without realizing we can also lead this conversation. And it's just this incredibly, um, you know, informative and, you know, important, um, you know, insertion into a place that she should not have to insert herself. Tongan people should have been, should own the story. Mm -hmm. And I mean, literally own the story. Like, you know, there is a white man who bought the life rights to this story. And that's appalling. And that's, that's, you know, but as I say, it's, it's not surprising. So I'm going to put the link to it. Um, and you can read both, you know, if you want to, the Guardian article that is sparking this conversation. And then um, Vika Mana's responses to it, as well as a number of other um, Tongan writers who are like, yo, there's so much the story leaves out. There's so much that it gets wrong. But also, it is itself a horribly racist, colonialist framing. Like, oh, we're so surprised, <laughs> you know, like, that these Tongan boys, these indigenous kids, you know, didn't behave themselves the way that we expected based upon this, you know, mid 20th century, you know, work of fiction, like fuck off with that. So anyway, gonna put the link up there. Okay. That's a lot. <laughs> it's really, it's oh. really super interesting. Jeez. All right. Um, my freak out this week, I'm going to shout out two books, which are both the third in their series, <laughs> their respective theory series. But I just finished them back to back. So um, the first is Mary Robinette Kowal, friend of the cast. Um, I finished The Relentless Moon, which is available for pre-order, I believe. Um, it is the third book in the Lady Astronaut series, which I didn't know there was going to be a third book because the second book ended in a way that I was like, oh, I don't know where the fuck you would go from here. Like, <laughs> this is just, this is the end. But the third book actually takes place in between the first two. Um, mm. And it's, and it is um, from the perspective of a totally different character. So it's someone that you meet in the other books, but, um, you know, you obviously very different. And, um, she is also an astronaut and she and this is all about um time on the moon um instead of time going to mars i highly recommend it i think it was really delightful i think that this character is a lovely badass woman that i enjoyed uh reading and experiencing um and also i'm i'm going to say that there is parts of the book that startled the crap out of me in terms of our current times <laughs> um, and that are like in this book. So that's it. I'm just going to say it's not out yet. I don't, I'm sorry. I don't know when it comes out, but I do know that it's up for pre-order. So definitely check that out if you're into um, space and astronauts and all of that jazz. Um, I don't think that you need to know the other two books to pick this one up, although I do recommend the other books as well. Um, but it is, you know, fairly standalone, although it does reference some of the other characters. Uh, I will also say, sorry, one more thing about it is what I love about these books is that um, I think Mary Robinette does a really good job of figuring out how to integrate issues of race 
um, into a story which is which could very easily just be all white people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It is, you know, it's about space exploration as a way to save humanity in like after World War II. So I think it takes place like in the 50s and 60s. the 50s 40s 50s whatever it's you know like it's a time, <laughs> whatever it's a time i was like when is world war ii anyways it's it's a time when like i think with some other authors that are not as conscious of the importance of addressing these issues does so for example like one one creative way of like directly addressing race in this is that um there is the um the ICA, which is the interplanetary... No, I'm making all of this up. Anyways, the people who fund space travel or or space exploration across the world, one of the big countries that invests in space travel is South Africa. South Africa is in the middle of apartheid at this moment in time. And so like using that as a way to talk about race and racism and tensions, like on Mars <laughs> and like in Mars or on the moon or in these these discussions I think was a really smart way of not erasing um the realities that um that face people of color in this particular time and and integrating them into these narratives so um and also there are lots you know it's about women in space and um so lots of sexism too hooray <laughs> Anyways, Mary Robinette does a really good job. I'm not doing it justice, but I think it's really smart how she handles all of that. The second book I want to shout out that I just finished last night is John Scalzi's The Last Emperor. Emperor. Wow, I've never said that out loud. There's a lot of names in this book that if I ever had to say out loud, I think I would just be like, you know how when you read, you just like make up the ways that names should be pronounced because you're just like reading them in your head. Does anyone else do that? Oh, yeah. And I think the bonus should be you just picking out those names and trying to figure out how to pronounce them. (laughs) Sure. But and then as soon as you say them out loud or talk to someone else, you're like, oh, shit, I totally read that wrong. Anyways. okay, John Scalzi's uh, The Last Emperor. It's from um, the Interdependency series. It is this is a trilogy. This is the last book. So it ends. The first two books are Collapsing Empire, The Consuming Fire. And it is a, you know, a space opera. It's about the really... It's about climate change, but in a, you know, obviously in a science fiction world. So it's about the end of the com- the flow, which is the ways that um, habitats can get to other solar systems within this larger interdependency. Um, so once they are cut off from each other, then they will not have any ability to sustain their own lives because they're interdependent. And you have all of these monopolies on like rice and and uh, technologies, and each of these noble families have all of these monopolies. So therefore, if they get cut off, it is literally going to be a long, slow death for all of these planets and communities and hubs and all of this stuff. So it's a really, um, it's bold, uh, and it's intense. And and there's a lot of evil people and, you know, hierarchies and, you know, all of the all of the like political machinations that go on there and some just really, really cool female characters that I I really enjoyed. So um, I think it was a lovely wrapping up of the series and I recommend it. So I didn't mean to have two freakouts, but I they both sound great, though. (laughs) They're wonderful. All right. We do have a listener freakout this week, which I am excited about. We love your freakouts. So this one is from Juno. 
How's it going, folks? Juno here. Today I'm freaking out about a queer live read of the 2001 Ocean's Eleven, aptly named Ocean's Eleven But Gay. It was produced by Gabby Dunn and has a fantastic cast, among whom are Stephanie Beatrice from Brooklyn Nine-Nine in the lead role, Jen Richards, Mara Wilson, Natasha Negavanlis and Elise Bauman. The entirety of the script was performed live on YouTube the other day, and it's been uploaded to Gabby Dunn's channel for posterity if anyone wants to check it out. Of course, it was all done through Zoom, which added to how entertaining it was. There were rapid costume changes, dollar store wigs, set design courtesy of Zoom's virtual background feature, and Jen Richards nailing the whole Brad Pitt eating in almost every scene game. As a queer person who loves heist movies, I'm endlessly disappointed by films both oversaturated with men and overwhelmingly heteronormative. This live read was incredibly refreshing in comparison. I cannot recommend it enough. It's fun, it's queer, shenanigans ensue. What more do you need? Anyway, I hope everyone is safe and has a good week. See ya. Thanks, Juno. That, um, I, I don't know about anyone else, but Ocean's Eleven, but queer is Yo, like, right? <laughs> is like kind of the best description of anything ever. So we're going to put the link to that in the show notes so folks can check it out. We would love you to submit your own freakout at feministfrequency.com slash freakout, F-R-E-Q-O-U-T. Thanks so much for listening to Feminist Frequency Radio. Stay tuned for the Freakin' After Party, which is only available to backers of this podcast. And you can learn more about that at patreon.com slash femfreak. I am going to to have a freak out in the after party about how people in San Francisco are fucking monsters. Please tune in to find out why. (laughs) You can find us everywhere. Great podcasts are found. And if you haven't yet, go to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and review us. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and all the social medias at FemFreak. This show is engineered by Rob Para. Carrie Stimson provides technical support, artwork by Jamie Varon, and our intro music is by Phil Circus. Join us next week for another feminist dive into popular culture. Bye. Bye. Later. Later.